Welcome to New Life Church's weekly message. New Life Church's mission is to lead people into a transforming relationship with Jesus through the gospel. This week, speaker Pastor Steve Benninger delivers a message from the series, Portraits, Jesus, Who Are You? You can find the sermon outline and video for this message at enewlife.com or the New Life Church Gehenna mobile app. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now became wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins on the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. This is God's word. Well, I know we have a lot of people in this church who enjoy reading, and I'm wondering how many of you enjoy a good biography every now and then. Can I see your hands? Yeah, a number of you. I'm slowly making my way through a fascinating biography uh, these days of the Wright Brothers uh, by an author named David McCullough. It's a great story, and as you know, the setting is not too far from here, just uh, a few miles west over near Dayton. And the author is intending in his book to show how these two no-name small-town brothers, through a lot of persistence and resilience and shrewdness, just overcome a lot of setbacks and ridicule and opposition to build something that ended up changing our world, right? It's It's a great read. I recommend it to you. Well, in our current sermon series, we too are making our way through a biography. And this one is even more fascinating. It's the biography of who? Jesus of 
Nazareth, written by his good friend, John, the disciple. Like all authors, John has a goal in mind. He's got an aim in mind, and he wasn't hiding it from anybody. Near the end of his book, he revealed his intentions in writing it. In John chapter 20, verse 30, he said this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So we should let that be our lens as we study this book together. John says, I am including the things that I'm including in my account for a purpose, to demonstrate and show that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed the Son of God, the Messiah. And he did that so that his readers, having their eyes opened now to Jesus' identity, would believe in him, would have faith, and would receive his life, his eternal life. We already saw back in the first chapter that John began to build his case by presenting testimony for Jesus' identity from five witnesses, right? Five young men who knew Jesus personally. These men made clear and convincing statements showing that they believed, each of them, that Jesus was the Son of God. The chapter ended with Jesus telling that fifth witness, Nathaniel, that he would see even greater things than he saw on that day that he first met Jesus. And so now here in chapter 2, John is going to show us some of those greater things. As we heard uh, Andrew reading the account here, John places side by side two events that each occurred in the first week of the public ministry of Jesus. And I think the juxtaposition of these two very different scenes is kind of jarring to us. But I don't think it's, it's accidental on John's part. There's something he wants us to see. First, we observe Jesus and his new disciples attending a wedding, right? In the small town of Cana, with some interesting occurrences there. And then we see him a few days later in the temple court in the city of Jerusalem, having an interesting encounter with some folks there. So the first one was a festive and joyous celebration that Jesus made even more joyous. And the second one was an intense and kind of awkward confrontation. Now the theme that ties these two events together is found in verses 11 and verse 22. And they remind us of John's purpose in writing the book. So after reporting what happened at that wedding, in verse 11, John writes this. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And so John calls what Jesus did there a sign. And what does a sign do? It points to something, right? It points beyond itself to something else. And here, this sign that Jesus did pointed to his glory. John said he was manifesting his glory. He was putting his attributes on display for people to see and behold in hopes that they would what? Believe. Believe. That theme, that same theme is continued in the second event, which is often referred to as the cleansing of the temple. He cleared out the temple court. And that climaxed with Jesus predicting that he was going to die and then rise from the grave. And so in the wake of that event, John wrote in verse 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So can you see it? 
It's the theme of belief, of faith, that ties these two events together, as different as they are. And in fact, it's that theme that's the common thread through all of the events that John records in his book. John John chose to include those things from Jesus' life that would stir up faith. First in the people who were there and saw these things firsthand, and now in people like us who are reading John's account centuries later. But notice there's also a a warning, kind of a, a veiled warning at the very end of this section. It's kind of unsettling. Verse 23, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. So there's a kind of believing, there's a kind of faith that falls short, falls short of true, genuine, saving faith. But of course, we already knew that because we studied the book of James last fall. And we saw that there is a false faith, right? A spurious faith. It's not the genuine article. It's not real. We saw that even demons, even Satan himself has faith. Demons have faith, but they tremble because their faith will not save them from eternal torment. Their faith is a mere mental thing. It's a mere intellectual assent, a mental agreement to a set of facts about Jesus. It's not an entrusting of their whole lives to Jesus. Do you see the difference? And here we see it's not just demons who have that kind of suspect faith, but people too. John reports there were some people who saw these signs that Jesus did and they believed, but evidently their faith was not genuine because it says Jesus didn't commit himself to them. Something was missing in their so-called faith, and Jesus knew it. So this morning, as we walk through the ways that Jesus manifested his glory in these two scenarios, I want you to ask yourself this. Is my faith just something that's in my head? It's something I believe mentally. Is Is it just mental, intellectual assent to some facts about Jesus? Oh, yeah, I know about Jesus. Or has it made its way down into your heart and captivated you at the core of your being such that you have surrendered your whole life to Christ? That's the faith that will save you, that will result in you experiencing and receiving his eternal life. All right, so John declares that Jesus was manifesting his glory through these signs that he performed. So let's ask the question, how? How so? In what ways was Jesus revealing, manifesting his glory through turning water into wine at a wedding and in clearing the merchants out of the temple courts? And I think if we look closely, we can, we can see that his glory is being revealed in a number of ways. If you haven't pulled your study guide out yet, go ahead and do that now so you can track with me. And the first thing we see is Jesus revealing his glory as being the sovereign Lord over creation. The sovereign Lord over creation. So Jesus goes to a wedding. It's a good thing, right? Now, weddings in those days weren't the, you know, hour-long followed by a reception like we do now. They lasted days. The celebration did. Sometimes even a week. It says his mom was there. 
Mary, perhaps she had some role in preparing or serving the food, as moms are prone to do. (coughs) Excuse me. But at some point in the celebration, what happens? They run out of wine. Now, that would have been a major embarrassment for the groom and for the bride. And Mother Mary, perhaps used to having her oldest son solve problems and fix things, notifies Jesus in hopes he can do something about it. And what does Jesus do? Well, he kind of politely brushes her off. He says something about it not being his hour yet. Then, without any explanation, he proceeds to go ahead and do something about it. Now, exactly how, we are not told, but somehow Jesus transforms 180 gallons of H2O into some of the best wine to ever stimulate the human palate. I mean, this is good stuff. And the master of the feast is not only grateful, but he's blown away. He's like, whoa! So he sidles up to the groom and he basically says, you sneaky fella, you. You saved the best stuff until now. Bold move, my friend, bold move. You might become a trendsetter. He didn't realize that the groom didn't do it. It was Jesus who did it. Basically saved the party and salvaged the reputation of the groom, right? John called that turning of water into wine the first of his signs. And it was a sign because it pointed people to something else, something other than just keeping a party going with good wine. It pointed to Jesus' glory in being the sovereign Lord over creation, over the created order. Think about it now. Just like Jesus would would demonstrate later when he commanded the wind and the waves to obey him, and they did, or when he cursed a fig tree and came back to see it withered up and dead, or when he took a kid's lunch, five loaves and two small fish, and multiplied it, such that it fed lunch to thousands of people. This again, like in those instances, was Jesus showing his authority over everything that he had had created. I mean, John already said all things were made through him, right? And so here at the wedding, somehow he orders a substance that he had created, water, to change its molecular structure and become wine. And that's a miracle of transformation. When I studied this, I was reminded of a time back when I was a teenager in church when they asked me to do a devotional lesson for a group of kids at VBS. I thought, I, I accepted, and I thought, well, what am I, what am I gonna say? You know, what am I gonna do? And I remember my dad had a book at home on object lessons. So I decided to go home and, and look through that book, and I found a really cool object lesson that I liked. So when VBS rolled around, there I was up in front with about 30 kids looking at me. I had a bag with me of of supplies and I pulled a drinking glass out of my bag, a clear drinking glass, and I filled it up with water. Then I dropped a few drops of iodine in that water to turn it black, which represented the darkness of the human heart of sin. Then I pulled out a jar filled with a red liquid that represented the blood of Jesus, which I had already prepared by mixing the secret ingredients from the instructions. When I poured the red liquid into the black water, what do you think happened? Well, one thing that happened is the kids' eyes grew as big as saucers, and they're like, whoa! And I said, yes! 
Jesus' blood makes our dark hearts clean again because the water, the black water, had turned crystal clear. And the kids are like, whoa, it's a miracle. And I said, no, it's chemistry. That's what it is. <laughs> They're like, how did you do that? I said, I'll never tell. I'll never tell. Put the book in the back of my pocket and walked away. <laughs> well, that was not a miracle. But this was a miracle, what Jesus did. It was a miracle of what? Of creative conversion. It was a miracle of material transformation. And through this sign, Jesus was revealing himself to be the sovereign Lord over all of the created order. And that's pretty glorious, but there's more. More glory being revealed here. There's also, number two, the glory of Jesus being the ultimate sin purifier. The ultimate purifier of sin. Did you catch what Jesus chose to use for the vessels to hold all this new wine that he had created? Did you catch it? It says they were water jars of purification. Now these were not little drinking cups. They were big stone containers that could each hold up to 30 gallons of water. And that water is what was used in all of the ceremonial washings that were required in the Judaistic religion. Apparently these jars were sitting there empty or half empty. Jesus told the servants, go fill those up with water. Fill them up to the brim. And that's when the water that was meant for ritual purification was transformed into red wine. And I ask you, do you think there was any significance in that? I do. Is it possible that Jesus was here signifying that it would be his red blood that would ultimately serve to truly purify and cleanse people from their sins? I believe so. Listen, is there anywhere else in scripture where wine is equated with blood? This cup is the New Testament, the new covenant in my blood. Drink all of it in remembrance of me. This wine is my blood. Think about it. Jesus could have chosen any number of containers to store this wine in, but he chose water jars of purification. So I and many other people believe he did that on purpose as a sign to point people to the purifying sacrifice that he knew he would make one day. And one reason I believe this is because we already know Jesus was thinking about his death. Did you see it? What did he say when his mother prompted him to do something about the lack of wine? What did he say? My hour has not yet come. Now you need to know that in the book of John, whenever it talks about Jesus' hour, it's talking about the hour of his death. And I believe the same holds true here. So think about it. He's there at a wedding. Everybody's laughing and joking and feasting and eating and drinking and having a great time. But Jesus is thinking about his death. He's looking ahead to the day of his execution. Do you think he felt kind of alone in that crowd? And so, with that on his mind, he decides to turn Old Covenant purification water into wine to symbolize his own shed blood that in three short years would provide real purification from sin under the new covenant. What can wash away my sins? 
Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is an amazing sign. It's a wonderful sign. I tell you what, Jesus Christ is exceedingly glorious as the sovereign Lord over creation and as the ultimate sin purifier. But there's more. There's more of our Savior's glory to be seen here. There's also number three, the glory of Jesus being the heavenly bridegroom, what we would call groom in our culture. So Jesus is a 30-year-old single guy and he's at a wedding. What do you imagine young men are thinking about when they're at a friend's wedding? Well, one thing they're often thinking about is their own wedding one day, hoping for that, looking ahead to that. You may not agree with me, but I believe that Jesus was present at this wedding, but he was thinking about his wedding. You say, wait a second, I thought you just said he was thinking about his death. Well, he was, but also about what his death would make possible. Have you ever wondered what it means when the Bible says, Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross? What joy? What joy was Jesus looking past the cross to that motivated him to stay faithful? Could it be that Jesus was here envisioning the great joy that he was going to have at his own wedding one day? I mean, a blowout, extravaganza, unlike any wedding celebration you and I've ever been to. That's what's coming. And a wedding that would only happen if he went through with the Father's plan of him dying on a cruel cross. Those of you who study the scriptures know that one of the overarching themes of the Bible is that God the Father is preparing a bride for his son. God the Father is preparing a pure and beautiful bride for his son to be united with one day, to dwell with in love forever in heaven. In fact, the storyline of the Bible begins with a marriage and it ends with a wedding. Read Revelation 19. So you say, well, who's Jesus gonna marry? Who's he gonna get married to? Who's his bride? Well, Jesus' bride in the scriptures is the washed and redeemed people of God from every age. Finally cleansed from all of her sin and all of her defilement and made perfect, clothed in white, representing the righteousness of Christ. Is it possible that John wants us to see here a prefiguring of the glory of Jesus as the heavenly bridegroom? anticipating being with his bride one day. You can decide for yourself. I, for me, I've already decided. <laughs> I believe so. But listen, as glorious as that is to think about, there's still more to be seen from this wedding in Canaan. Number four, don't miss this. There's the glory of Jesus being the remover of shame. The remover of shame. One commentator said this about this scene. Jesus is basically wiping the egg off the faces of two embarrassed teenagers who failed to adequately plan for their wedding. <laughs> and that wasn't the first time that happened and it wouldn't be the last time either, would it? Certainly we should be taken by the deep spiritual meanings and significance that we've just been talking about. But let's not overlook the reality of the situation through the eyes of this young couple. Now we don't live, ours is not a shame-honor culture 
like many cultures in the Far East are, but it is in the Middle East and it was back then. This would have been a nightmare for the bride and the groom, a nightmare of epic proportions. This would have been a social faux pas that they would have never lived down, probably. When I thought about that, I, kind of, I thought about the time where we had a stewardship banquet here in this room many years ago, a stewardship banquet, right? Um, talking to our folks about uh, making pledges to financially support God's work here, like Pastor Brian just mentioned a few moments ago. And there was a banquet, and the tables were lined up over here with all the pans of food, and people were lined up. And I remember the buffet line there with, with several dozen people still waiting in line. We ran out of meat, which is bad news. And I can still remember the look on the faces of one of our deacons as he came up to the pan, and it was empty. And I've often wondered if he adjusted his pledge that year accordingly based on (laughs) what happened. An embarrassment for sure. Well, this couple's shame and embarrassment would have dogged them and, and their family for a long time. But thankfully, and not a moment too soon, Jesus comes to their rescue, right? Jesus saves the day. Disaster is averted. He provided what they lacked. He removed their shame. Isn't that what Jesus is still doing for his people today? Removing our shame? Think about it. How glorious is it to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that your guilt and shame have been completely wiped away and erased through the cleansing and rinsing of his blood? And remember, our mess-ups weren't just social miscues, they were utter moral failures. 10,000 times more egregious than what happened here. And think about this. Think about the fact that Jesus' death removes not only the guilt and shame of our own sins, which we all have, but the shame that we've been carrying around because of the sins others have committed against us. Abuse and those kinds of things. When we truly believe in this rescuer, he washes away all of our defilement completely for all time. Amen? It's gone. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No guilt, no shame to torment us. He took it all on himself, says he cast it all in the sea of forgetfulness to be remembered against us no more. That's why we call it good news, the gospel. And that's why we call Jesus glorious for doing that for us, removing our shame. Now, that's just a glimpse of Jesus' glory from there at that wedding scene in Cana. But John wants us to see more. He wants us to see more dimensions, more sides of Jesus. So he includes this second event. Says that after the wedding, Jesus went to another town called Capernaum for a few days. Then he set out again and went up to Jerusalem, a city, to participate in the Passover feast there. So here's a travel map, if you can see it. Remember, there were no four-wheel drives, Ford Explorers, SUVs back then. This was a lot of walking to get from place to place. So he makes his way up to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And that was a big annual event. Happened every year. It was kind of a national festival where Jewish people from all over the Roman Empire would travel and make their way to Jerusalem. And they did so to commemorate uh, what was a landmark event in Israel's history their deliverance from Egypt. 
by the hand of Moses, and that had occurred some 1,500 years before this event. During the Passover feast, many animals would be slaughtered as sacrifices, and of course, that would recall the killing of lambs by the Jewish people, remember, under Pharaoh? When they took the blood, remember, and sprinkled it on their doorposts, so the death angel coming would see the blood and would pass over them and spare their firstborn from judgment as the angel went on to execute that very same judgment on the unbelieving people of Egypt. That's why this is called the Passover, reminiscent of the angel passing over them and sparing them. Now, remember, John the Baptist had already called Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So here, that Lamb, Jesus, comes into the temple ground looking forward to celebrating with his friends the rescuing power of the spilt blood And what he finds there disgusts him. And the lamb turns into the lion. John wants to to see this aspect of Jesus, this dimension of Jesus' glory as well. Number five, the glory of Jesus being the zealous son of the father. Make room in your minds for the real Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible now. This scene, there's no sweet, sappy Jesus, no Jesus prancing through the meadows, long flowing robes, golden hair. That's not this Jesus, no milk toast Jesus here. Create a new category in your brain if you must. Here is angry Jesus. Here is righteously indignant Jesus. Here is whip snapping Jesus passionately zealous for his father's honor, right? Do not, do not, do not make my father's house a house of trade. I won't stand for it. You know, this would happen again. This is at the beginning of his ministry. The other gospel writers tell us it happens again near the end of his ministry, just prior to his trial and his execution and his death. That tells me that Jesus' zeal for his father's honor would not diminish over time one bit. If anything, it intensified. Now, John had already told us that Jesus knows what's in the heart of man, and he definitely knew what was in the hearts of these merchants, these money changers. So envision this now. Jesus walks in this big temple courtyard area. There's all kinds of activity and commotion going on. There's animals. There's these tables. There's money changing hands. And Jesus knows what's in the hearts of those men. Travelers were coming from miles away. Instead of bringing their sacrificial animals with them, This was a service intended to be a convenience to them. Hey, you can purchase your sacrificial animals right here on the spot. But the problem is they were price gouging them. They were hiking up the rates on those sacrificial animals. They were ginning up the exchange rates on foreign currencies, swindling these poor village people out of their meager resources. Jesus looked into their hearts and you know what he saw? Greed. He saw unbridled greed and it kindled his anger, and Jesus basically goes on a rampage. He clears out the place. His disciples are with him. Remember, this is, they've just met him. This is fairly new to them, and they're probably like, whoa, we haven't seen this side of Jesus yet. <laughs> I mean, we saw him at the wedding, and that was one thing. Now we're seeing a whole other side of Jesus, and they remembered what Psalm 69.9 says about the Messiah's consuming zeal for his father's house, and they're like, whoa, 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 the master is fired up. Is that a whip he's making? Is that a whip he's making? 
You see, this is Jesus too. This is also a part of Jesus' glory. Intense jealousy for his Father's honor. And zealous passion that people be allowed to worship God as he deserves to be worshipped. It's interesting to me that this incident took place not inside the temple, but in the outer court where even Gentiles, even proselyte Gentiles could come and worship. And it seems that Jesus wanted to make sure that even those outside the Jewish covenant could come and worship the God of Israel without impediment, without hesitation, without obstruction. And that's glorious too, isn't it? Because it means that people like us can also have a relationship with the Holy God. I mean, how many of you are Jewish? I mean, most of us are Gentiles. Aren't you glad that Jesus opens up that outer courtyard of worship to people like us? And there's more glory to be shown here. So Jesus has just ransacked the place, right? And the startled Jewish leaders look around at the big mess Jesus made and they say, verse 18, what sign do you show us for doing these things? (laughs) In other words... By what authority do you think you can just come in here on our turf and wreak havoc? Show us some credentials, you young whippersnapper. And with that challenge now, the confrontation begins between Jesus of Nazareth and these Jewish religious leaders. A confrontation which would last three years and intensify and culminate in Jesus being prosecuted as a criminal and then executed. It's interesting, isn't it? Show us a sign, Jesus. Show us a sign. If I'd been there, I would have said, you want a sign? Talk to someone who was at the wedding. (laughs) I just did a sign. Show us a sign. We're going to see this again and again. We, We want a sign from you, Jesus. Do something spectacular to prove that you're really the Son of God. And he did many times. We're going to see in the book of John many signs that Jesus did. And did they believe? Did they believe? No. And so there, standing in the shadow of Herod's huge temple that dominated the landscape, Jesus gives them what they asked for, but not what they expected. Verse 19, Jesus answered them. Okay, you want a sign? Here you go. Destroy this temple... And in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So this is going on again, right? And I think there's more glory here. In addition to everything we've already seen, John wants us to also, number six, see the glory of Jesus being the new temple of God. Jesus being the new temple of God. Now, many of you know that in in Judaism, the temple represented what? The temple was the place where God and man could meet. It was the place where blood sacrifices were offered, where the Holy of Holies was with its golden cherubim and its bloody mercy seat. That chamber that was separated from the other areas by this thick curtain, this thick floor-to-ceiling curtain, at least four inches thick. That most holy of spaces could only be entered by one man, the high priest, and him only once a year. He would go in and make blood atonement for the sins of the people. And I believe Jesus was in essence saying to these Jewish leaders, look, 
I'm the temple now. I'm the new temple. I'm the true and better house of God where God and man can meet. This building behind us is going to pass away, both physically and symbolically. And did you know that within 40 years it would be leveled by the Roman general Titus and his armies as they moved into Jerusalem and wiped it out? Jesus here is saying, look, from now on, my body, my body, which is going to be ripped apart like that curtain, my body is going to be the place where a holy God and sinful man can meet. It's not the blood of bulls and goats that can fully atone for sins. It's my blood sprinkled on the real mercy seat up in heaven that's going to be the fully satisfying payment for human, human sin. I am the new temple of God. Did they get it? I don't think they did. I think they were probably more confounded when he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And they're thinking, seriously, Jesus? It's taken 46 years. It's been under construction here for 46 years and it had. And you're saying it's going to get torn down and you're going to rebuild it in three days? Seriously? Jesus was always talking on level. People were always hearing and responding on a whole different level. Even his own disciples didn't really understand this until later. Verse 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. See, there's another glorious manifestation here and it's huge. Number seven, it's the glory of Jesus being the fulfillment of his own prophecy. Jesus being the fulfillment of his own prophecy. Now, it's true that Jesus fulfilled hundreds of prophecies contained in the Old Testament, right? Over 300 of them fulfilled by his life and death. But he also fulfilled his own predictions, including this monumental statement that he would raise himself from the dead. Now, Little point of theology here. Here, Jesus says he's going to raise himself up from the grave. But in Acts 2.24, Peter says that God the Father raised Jesus from the grave. And in Romans 8.11, it's implied that the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the grave. So which is it? Who was right? <laughs> they all were. They all were. Just like all of the works of the triune God, like creation and revelation of his truth, and redemption of his people. This was a collaborative work of all three members of the Holy Trinity who raised Jesus. I'll tell you who, the three-in-one God raised him from the dead. This is exceedingly glorious, is it not? Can you see now more clearly the glory of Jesus brought to light through these two situations? I hope so. I hope the Lord gives you and me eyes to see Jesus' glory in being the sovereign Lord over all creation, the ultimate purifier of sin, the heavenly bridegroom, the remover of our shame, and also to see his glory as the zealous son of his father, and the new temple of God, and the fulfiller of his own predictions. But you know what? That's not all. John slides in one final manifestation of Jesus' glory in verses 24 and 25. We saw it earlier. It says that Jesus knows what is inside of mankind. He knows our hearts, right? 
And that's nothing less than a manifestation, number eight, of the glory of being the omniscient God. Omniscient means what? All-knowing. Think about the fact that Jesus knows what you're thinking right now. He knows what I'm thinking right now. He knows what's in your heart and mine. He knows your ambitions. He knows your inclinations. He knows your passions. He knows your intentions. He knows your behavior and your actions. He knows what you're about. He knows your past. He knows that about every person in this room. He knows that about every person in this town, in this city, in this state, in this nation, in this world. Jesus peers into the heart of every individual and knows what's there. And that should be the most comforting and the most convicting thought you could have this morning. He knows. He knows. He knows your sin and shame today. He also knows where he has made your heart pure and good. Aren't you glad of that? He knows whether our faith in him is genuine and real and saving faith or whether it's laced with questioning and doubts and fears. He knows those among us who don't fully believe yet to the point of responding to him in full surrender. He knows that and as it says in Timothy, he certainly knows those who are his. Jesus is amazing. He's the omniscient God. He presents himself to us in this book as the all-glorious, all-satisfying, all-sufficient, living Lord. And as we saw, he came to offer himself to live and to die and to shed his blood as the only sufficient cleansing agent for our sins. Isn't that true? And so for those of us today who are Christians, who are believers, we celebrate that, don't we? We celebrate that reality and we commemorate our redemption in his blood through sharing together in something that he taught us, he commanded of his followers, and that's the Lord's table. And I want to pray for us right now that we'll be prepared for that. And so Lord Jesus, as our vision of you has been enlarged this morning, hopefully, and has grown in our minds. Oh, he's more. He's more than I thought. I pray now you would allow us to hone in and focus in on what you came to do. Lord, you came to live a perfect life and you came to die. Allow your body to be lacerated and filleted and your blood to spill out onto the ground on Golgotha's hill as the payment for our sins. Lord, you know us today. You know who's in this room. You know our hearts. You know those of us that have walked in with shame. The weight of that. You know know those of us who've walked in with active, ongoing sin in our lives. And I pray right now you would give your people here the grace to examine themselves in the light of your truth. They would bring those things up to the surface and lay them out before you and say, oh Jesus, I repent, I confess. Cleanse me again with your blood. Lord, there may be some in this room who are not yet believers. Their faith is not yet sunk down into their hearts and become real and genuine. Oh, how I pray in this moment you would give them the faith to repent and believe and treasure Jesus as their only hope of eternal salvation and forgiveness. And then, 
as a believer, they would come and partake of your table. Please make this a special time these next few moments. Grace us with your presence as we follow your clear instructions to us that we remember your death until you return. Visit us each week as we continue to journey through God's word and seek to know him better through the gospel. Our prayer is that the gospel has taken a deeper hold of you as we have studied the word together at New Life Church, where Jesus is front and center all the time.